Good morning. I hope you've slept well and are ready to start your day. You're starting your morning off right because you're listening to Dura, the podcast about what keeps neurosurgeons up at night. My name is Marike Broekman, neurosurgeon from the Netherlands. And in this episode, I'll talk to Wilco Pul, professor of neurosurgery in Leiden and The Hague. He's also my boss and the new editor in chief of the new ENS journal, Brain and Spine. Good morning, Wilco. How did you sleep? Hi, good morning. Well, I had a very, very bad sleep uh, this night. It was, uh, it was not comfortable. Uh, we got a message that, uh, that the COVID situation is getting out of hand and uh, that all our urgent oncology cases cannot be operated. So I had a bad night to reschedule things. And uh, well, sometimes uh, that keeps me uh, out of my sleep. Yeah, I can imagine. Are there specific patients you're worried about? Yes, there are some specific patients which were already cancelled a few uh, weeks ago and replanned for the next week. And now we hear that uh, they are not able to be operated sometimes. So, well, that's uh, that's our life. I think everybody throughout the world has the same thing. I think that this period is more worrisome than uh, in the beginning of the year for our country it looks a little bit like what has happened in spain and italy in the beginning of this year and why do you think it's it's worse now compared to march april i think because um, at that moment we had um, all our cases in, in leiden and the hague uh, well in order so we didn't have a waiting list at that moment and um, after that period, there was um, there was uh, quite a waiting list, especially with very complex uh, oncology cases and skull base and spine, uh, which were postponed during the first period. And the second period already started in September, October. So then we already had some uh, difficulties in planning. And yesterday we heard that... Um, that uh, we have to stop our regular schemes of uh, of planning. So that means that patients who with malignant bone tumors or on a waiting list or already quite a uh, long time are postponed until February, maybe. And what do you think we can do as neurosurgeons? Well, to be more active in uh, this whole countrywide and European-wide politics of planning uh, throughout hospitals. Until recently, uh, we as neurosurgeons and also the thoracic surgeons were having an exceptional situation in every hospital because we can always proceed. And now COVID is more important than our uh, neuro-oncology or acute neurosurgery patients. So I think we should be more politically active um, and to defend our cases, our patients. If we have to triage, how do you think we can do that? How can we make decisions if, uh, between patients, for instance? Well, that's your topic about ethics. Um, there is um, a moral debate going on throughout our country, and probably also in other countries, which cases, which cases should um, be prioritized to treatment to the ICU and which not. Well, I've... I've um, maybe a difficult opinion about that. I know that some people say that people with high malignant gliomas should not be operated in uh, in code black. 
Um, I disagree. I think that uh, there are uh, most of them are young patients. You might discuss if there are older patients um, in color black. You cannot operate upon. I agree on that. But to 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 stop operating upon young people who are in the in the well in the middle of their life and diagnosed with a malignant brain tumor and then postponed because an elderly COVID patient might be prioritized, then we should fight for these patients and on behalf of those patients and their families. And that's what I mean by politics. We are uh, always a little bit in the back room. Now, they sometimes call it ivory tower. And we have to step out of the ivory tower and to show leadership to also our colleague medical specialists. So I don't want to prioritize. I think that um, people with degenerative spine diseases can wait. And uh, same is true for most of the functional nurse surgery cases. But uh, acute nurse surgery and uh, oncology should not wait. I fully agree with you. Um, there could be a situation that uh, that there is shortage of ICU beds. Uh, you're referring to uh, acute neurosurgical cases. Uh, many people know uh, your uh, interest and uh, involvement in the traumatic brain injury. Uh, what would you do if a young patient uh, comes in after neurotrauma and is useful? What, what do you think we can do? Now, first of all, do the treatment you need in the first case, in the first scenario, emergency scenario. And then uh, look what is possible. What I do see with full ICU beds, what we saw in the beginning of the year, you can always find a solution. And, uh, well, we are working in a very rich area of Europe um, and uh, in the happy position in our clinics that we have a network organization in which you have um, a hospital which is very responsible for acute care and a hospital which is very responsible for high developed academic care in which there's no place for acute care and um, the discussion should go on uh, do we need have neurosurgery acute neurosurgery in a trauma patient in every hospital or should we concentrate it in a few hospitals and if you concentrate that in a few hospitals like in our region then maybe in that hospital, there's no place for COVID. Um, so until now, we didn't have to refer a patient to elsewhere uh, after their first uh, brain trauma treatment uh, in the first few hours, but it can happen. Um, and what we did see uh, at the Leiden University Medical Center is that when we had a shortage of ICU beds in the beginning of the year, then we used uh, the, the, the ventilators on the OR with OR nurses doing the ICU care. So, but we didn't have the war situation which was there in Madrid, Barcelona and Milano um, and Bergamo. So um, we are still not in the position. But if that happens, I don't want to think about it then, uh, well, it will be a fight between medical doctors defending their cases. And I wouldn't give up, because that's the reason why we can became neurosurgeons. That's, uh, that's the reason that uh, I became a neurosurgeon to treat brain trauma and subagonous hemorrhage, because that was my um, 
for my, my core business at that moment as a resident, and I don't want to lose that. It, it sounds a little bit somber when I'm talking like that, but uh, mm -hmm. we should talk about something else. <laughs> no, no. But that's, I think, I think that's the most important thing is that we are there for our patients. And, um, and I know that in some clinics, people say, well, okay, this is life and we have to deal with that. But we are, we are there for our patients, not for ourselves. So, and I'm yesterday evening when we had the meeting about this new period coming on. And they expect the third peak around two or three in January. And they asked me that uh, people like me and other people should treat COVID patients. Well, I think that's a bad case because um, if necessary, we can do that. But we are not competent enough to treat COVID patients. We are competent to treat our neurosurgery cases. And that's, uh, that's piling up. You mentioned um, traumatic brain injury being the your uh, the core at the core of your motivation for becoming a neurosurgeon. You've treated many patients with traumatic brain injury. Do you think that type of care has changed over the years, or the way has the way we look at traumatic brain injury patients changed? Um, yes and no. Uh, what has changed? considerably is that we treat elderly patients and uh, that's very interesting that? yeah well it's very interesting when i was trained 30 years ago and i had an elderly patient of for instance uh, 80 years with an acute subdural traumatic acute subdural hematoma then my trainer would say well we'll go if we want to treat it okay uh, be my guest but it was not regular care it was quite exceptional that we treated at that moment traumatic brain injury in the elderly. And um, that has changed dramatically in our country. Uh, but I know from, for instance, um, uh, Alonso um, uh, Agares from uh, Madrid, who has uh, now sent around a questionnaire throughout Europe how to treat elderly with traumatic brain injury. Um, and I invite everybody to, 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 uh, to look at the Delphi questionnaire. Because then you see that there are differences throughout Europe and that some countries don't treat them. So that's in our country has changed dramatically. So we treat now elderly patients in which we don't know what the outcome is. Um, so that's a change. Uh, what did not change is our way of doing surgery and also the way we treat patients in the critical care units. And uh, that's uh, worrisome because I think uh, a lot of treatment, diagnosis and treatment algorithms are, uh, well, much better in many of our neurological diseases, which we treat surgically. But in brain trauma, uh, it's still like we are back in the 1910 when Harvey Cushing was treating uh, with decompressive craniectomies. So that's something which needs a uh, change. And um, I also think that we should also be aware that those patients need our care, not only during their critical care unit uh, period, but also thereafter. So they miss, um, they miss a, a doctor to speak to and to, to have control over the, the whole period. So that's something to work on for the next few years. And how do you think we can make the change? Well, to get control back again. Um, so um, 
I think I think it was also 20 to 30 years ago that we had at all our intensive care units, we had our own intensive care units, and we had a neurologist who was, who was treating our patients. Um, and this neurologist was part of our department. And we did know at that moment how our patients uh, did uh, in the rehabilitation center because we saw them, did see them back. And until a few years, I didn't see my patients back. So I treated them at the critical care unit. And uh, if they were alive, I was happy. And if they were awake, I was more happy. And we said, well, he's awake. That's a good outcome. And if you look at the goose, the the, the Glasgow outcome scale, um, we are very um, at a very low threshold, very happy with ourselves. Whereas the patients and the families uh, need guidance because they are not happy and they have a changed identity. They have neurological deficit. They have epileptic seizures in which we think that neurologists will take care of them, but they don't are taking are they are not taken care of. So uh, what was in control uh, by neurosurgeons so many years ago should come back in control. And not that we treat the whole patient at the home situation, but we that we know, we should know what uh, is happening to our patients. And um, and that means that you uh, also here, you have to show leadership and to be in the center of the care of the patient without um, knocking on your chest, uh, look how great I am. No, um, we have to work in the whole network with rehabilitation doctors, neurologists, um, even physiotherapists and people at home to show um, the results of the whole chain of care and not only the acute moment, uh, the helicopter coming in and um, and the, 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 the fast heart beating when you do your craniectomy. So um, you describe how we should uh, take control again and yeah. what needs to be done. It will take a lot of work and I think that there will there need to we need many studies for this purpose. Um, this is an excellent link to uh, the other thing I would really like to discuss with you, the new journal. Yeah. So uh, soon uh, the ENS will launch a new journal, Brain and Spine, European Journal of Neurosurgery, and you'll be the new editor-in-chief. Can you tell us a little bit about the new journal? Yeah, first of all, I'm very excited about it. And uh, to emphasize, it's a new journal, not only of the ENS, but together with the Spine Society of Europe, which is a unique relationship because uh, for the first time, um, a real neurosurgery society will work together with the Spine Society. And um, the reason why I'm excited because this is a chance to get uh, our scientific output at a higher level. Um, in the past, the neurosurgeons uh, were always uh, falling behind and walking behind the neurologists or uh, um, general practitioners uh, internal medicine. And people always said, well, neurosurgeons, they are okay. They are performing very good neurosurgery. Let them do that. They are quite good with their hands. That those people forget that our brains are connected to our hands. And uh, if we want to uh, to have our brains working at the speed like neurologists are doing, then we can have also a very good output. And the only way to do that is to, to, to be the owner of your own journal. And um, 
for the Acta Neurochirurgica, which is quite a good journal, but also for the, uh, the, the European Spine Journal, which is uh, owned by Springer, and both are owned by Springer, those are not our own journals. So we cannot uh, lead the policy and strategic decisions uh, where science in neurosurgery uh, and spine pathology is going. So that's one of the most important reasons that I said yes to the request of Carly Schaller uh, if I would, do want to become uh, uh, editor-in-chief, one of the two editors-in-chief, because someone else will be responsible for spine. I will be there for brain and also for spinal cord injury, uh, and we will work together. But we want to also reach a high impact factor and not only to look at surgery itself, but at the whole chain of care. So also basic science, uh, the work you are doing, uh, you are in a surgeon doing basic science in neuro-oncology, which is a new world for me, but it should be part uh, of our work. So that should also be part of our publications. And uh, the same is true with the very exciting work which is now happening with biomarkers um, and also with outcome studies. So if we have the whole um, area of science around brain and spine in our hands, and hopefully also a part of nerve, but brain and spine is the main topic, I think we can reach um, uh, a high impact factor and uh, also present ourselves as being scientific societies of ourselves and not lacking behind the neurologist. And probably it will take more than 10 years if you came, come at the same level as the neurology uh, journals. But um, if we are ha reaching the impact factor uh, four to five um, in, in 10 years, then I'm already uh, satisfied, but we need to go higher. So, uh, well, that's, I think, the summary. I'm very happy that uh, we get a chance to do it. It will be a lot of work, and also of all the EANS members, um, who are doing science, but also those just starting science, it's a very good um, well, way to develop yourself and to read also about what's happening in Europe and also globally, because it is a journal of the EANS and Spanish Society Europe, both being European societies, but the scope will be worldwide. So we will have an editorial team of experts throughout the world and not focus only uh, on our European uh, peers. So this sounds like a major uh, project for you. You speak about taking control, taking control as neurosurgeons of our own publications. How did you learn to do this? Well, I'm not there yet. <laughs> but <laughs> but what I, I, I think it started um, 20, 30 years ago when I was resident. 30 years ago, I saw that we did, were doing surgery, uh, and we didn't know what we didn't know why we did the surgery because our older peers told us to do so. And um, if you are looking at the evidence for that, there was no evidence. So that's the, that started, and uh, I said, well, I I did want to know why did we do surgery for sciatica and remove a lumbar disc. And remove it completely, mind you. We did remove a disc completely 30 years ago. It's crazy when you think about it. It's only a short while ago. 
And if I asked that question, people said, well, no, there's no reason to do science, scientific in, um, investigation to that because it's, it's known for years that it is beneficial for the patient. It's very beneficial for the neurosurgeons to do surgery. Um, so and when I heard the last remark, and I still remember because I was in the R in The Hague where I was trained, and the surgeon was saying, well, it's, it's good for the patient, but it's also good for the neurosurgeon. I said, well, that's, that's, that's a tough one. Um, that it's something we need to investigate. And when I start, I said to the people, I want to do research into that. Um, a lot of people said to me, well, research, what you want to do is not for neurosurgeons. And that was the reason uh, that I started with it. I was provoked. I was challenged. And I was standing in the box ring and I was told by a neurologist, science is not for neurosurgeons. And that's the reason why I started. So I think it started already 25, 26 years ago. I was not allowed to do that during my residency because epidemiological research was not for neurosurgeons. So I finished my training. And at the moment of training, one of the people in Leiden, uh, the professor at that moment, wanted to be, become a staff member in the academic center. And I said, no, uh, the only reason I want to go there is if I can do this kind of research and become an epidemiologist. And first it was refused, mind you, it was refused. I said, okay, then I start working not in an academic setting because if I cannot do my own research, it's no reason for me to work in a university hospital. So I, at that moment started in a non-university setting. At that moment, the Hague was a non-university setting, very different from now. So I started then, and then I was called in the OR by the same professor. Well, welcome. If you really want that, we want you to have to have your at the university center. You can start doing that research. And so it started very small, very slowly, and then it went rapidly. And in a different kind of kinds of research, I had examples for myself in spine surgery, later brain trauma. But in brain trauma, I already had examples of people like Andrew Maas from Antwerp, who was first involved with them, and also from Hutchinson in uh, called Hutch in Cambridge, and Dave Menon, the critical care doctors. So it was it was easy to see that research could become mastered by the neurosurgery. Now yourself, you yourself also an example of that. You are a neurosurgeon, but you are also an expert in basic science. You see people throughout Europe in different kinds of um, uh, pathologies within neurosurgery, being functional, being trauma, being subarachnoid hemorrhage, in which you see that at different levels, neurosurgeons are taking the lead. So, and now it's the next step. Can we also lead our own journal and not be dependent on the publisher or on the commercial industry? That will be a tough one. But I am now at an, well, I'm still young, but I'm at an age which I think I can have some small fights in the political uh, arena. And um, we need that. So my role as editor-in-chief, uh, together with Frank Antiora on the spine part, he's an orthopedic surgeon in Germany. We are both quite strong people, but our main role will be leadership and have a very good editorial board and all people of EANS and Spine Science Europe working together to have a, a, a very high-rated journal in which people like it to read. And what would you like to learn from it? 
Um, I want. I think it will be the backbone of our societies, and um, and uh, that I learn a lot of our younger generations, and also my own and older generations, about the different topics within our field. Um, it's still too much scattered around the different journals. I hope that I can learn a lot of all the people doing the research. So many of our listeners um, are probably medical students and residents starting their careers in neurosurgery. What would your advice for them be? Um, well, the, the most important advice for the young people becoming a neurosurgeon or wanting to become a neurosurgeon, well, stay curious. You're, 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 Curious and courageous, and have a good communication. I think if you're curious and you lose that, um, uh, you lose that because you are trained in a certain way. And there are different situations in Europe, in which I know, and also worldwide, in which you have always to listen to your to your boss. But that's a good idea. You always have to listen to your boss, but you can also have your own opinion. And if your own opinion is different from that from your boss, you don't want to fight him, but you can look at that with your curious eyes and say, oh, how can I investigate it that my opinion might be a better one or that the opinion of my boss is a better one. So I would say um, be curious, stay curious, but also courageous. Try to stand up to the older generation. And um, it's sometimes difficult. Uh, I, I also know that Um, if you want to contradict me uh, with my charity, it's very difficult to contradict me. Uh, but I have a full respect for young people doing that. So I would advise to do that. I don't want neurosurgeons, young neurosurgeons, to be slaves of the other ones. You've heard it. Stay courageous and stay curious. If your curiosity is piqued by the new neurosurgery journal, or if you would want to listen to more of our podcast, please visit us at www.ians.org or look for Dura on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. One last question before you go. If you like this podcast and would like to help us reach more listeners, please leave a review in the Apple Podcast app. This will help others to find us. Thank you for that and thank you for listening. I hope to connect with you in two to four weeks. For now, have a great day.